Welcome to the 240th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. As I record this podcast, a worldwide COVID-19 pandemic is revealing just how dysfunctional our industrialized, corporate-controlled food and farm system truly is. For one thing, it turns out that a quarter of the food in the U.S. is consumed via the food service sector. That's the sector that includes restaurants, hotels, corporate cafeterias, schools, and other institutions. When the pandemic hit the U.S., that part of the market shut down literally overnight, as home quarantines were imposed. It turns out that when crops and livestock are raised and processed for the food service sector, the resulting products cannot be redirected to the consumer grocery market, at least not in the near term. The result has been a horrific amount of waste and increased food insecurity especially for the most vulnerable among us. As I speak these words in May 2020, hogs are being killed, milk is being dumped, and large vegetable operations in Florida and California are plowing under produce. Meanwhile, food shelves are struggling to keep up with demand, and grocery stores are short of many items. How did we get to this point? There are a lot of complicated answers to that question, but one thing this shows is how steep of a price we pay when we allow the connections between farmers and their customers to be severed. On the other hand, when such connections are strong, it provides a model for how we can create a resilient, sustainable food and farm system. We will need such models to look to as we search for ways to create a system that is not vulnerable to collapse during a crisis. Last summer, I witnessed firsthand the benefits of forming strong links between farmers and their customers. I spent the day at Threshing Table Farm, a community-supported agriculture produce operation in Star Prairie, Wisconsin. It's run by Farm Beginnings graduates Mike and Jody Lenz, along with their children, Claudia, Malcolm, and Jonas. Threshing Table produces roughly 230 CSA shares annually. Like most CSA farms, this one provides vegetables to families in their community. But in addition to household members, Threshing Table also sells several shares to Taher, a food service company that provides food to schools, corporate cafeterias, and government institutions in Minnesota and 18 other states. Through a connection they made through one of their children's schools a few years ago, the Lenses developed a strong relationship with Trent Taher, who is the vice president of purchasing for the company. Although his family is in a business that's not known for connecting with individual farmers, Trent is passionate about supporting local food systems and was willing to create a long-term relationship with Threshing Table. During the past few seasons, Threshing Table and Taher have deepened their relationship to the point where by the time I visited in 2019, 130 CSA shares were going to the food service company. It's unknown what impact the pandemic will have on Taher and Threshing Table, given the fact that it shut down the food service sector for an indefinite period of time. In fact, it's still unclear what the entire food and farming system will look like once we make it through this crisis. But the interviews I recorded with the Lenses and a couple of folks from Taher that day in June provided a bit of hope. Those conversations give us insights into what can happen when farmers, chefs, and the owners of a food service company bond over a love of good, healthy food produced locally. In fact, the day I was there, roughly 30 Taher chefs from around the country were touring the farm to learn more about how Threshing Table raises vegetables and to get ideas for possibly pursuing their own relationship with local farmers. While he and his chef were harvesting veggies for a noontime lunch, 
I followed Trent Taher through the farm's plots and talked to him about how he originally connected with the lenses. He also talked about how a relationship like this is based on being able to tell a good story. Something I really want to see people kind of think about, and this goes back to what we were talking about, I think, before you got here, is, you know, we have this relationship here, and, and just like what you guys are you're interested in, is like, how, how do we get her? How do we do it? So much of it has just been sitting around the table. What do you need? How do we make it work? And then just problem solving. And, you know, we, we use this philosophy, in, you know, in our company, you know, so much can be solved sitting around the dining table or the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's kind of what we've done a lot of is just what, is, what are the things, what are the opportunities, and how can we make it work? Um, and for us here, this is built over time. And for, these, for a takeaway for these individuals is, one, part of it, you know, if you want to build a localized relationship, it just starts by, like, starting a conversation. And, you know, we use this analogy about salt, you know, in cooking. You can always add, you can never subtract. Or if I say it in this environment, you can, it's easier to build in increments versus too much and then having to pull back. So right, build right. it versus having to pull it back. And I'd say, like, for them, if they could just say, okay, like I had one of these guys already come up and was like, well, I know a bunch of people. I either know through the market or, you know, a lot of people work in uh, rural communities. So their neighbors are producing or raising something. And it's like, well, how do I do this? And if they start to say that and start to think about that and, con- you know, and connect the dot, well, I already know this person. Maybe I could, yeah. what's not to love about that? Um, because local is driven by every community, right? We're operating in 20 states, right? This is Minnesota. Anyone in California doesn't care what we're doing in Wisconsin right now. So local has to be built on each, you know, at each place. And even here, like we live in Minneapolis. Now, granted, we're in Wisconsin right now, but this is, you know, eastern Wisconsin or western Wisconsin is right next to the city. Like in Madison, Madison local and Star Prairie and Minneapolis, it's not the same. See, we, we, if people start to continue to pop in, little, in their own little market, which we've really done a lot of, this just creates a different understanding of it because it's like, oh, my friend that makes local hot dogs or my friend that makes uh, a product and it's not necessarily, you know, this. Because this is still, what we do with these guys, is still, it's just, it's kind of surprising me how unique it is. Mm-hmm. Um, not just the volume, but just the, what it is in general. I mean, the volume has grown to be quite a bit, but yeah, so if we can get a couple of people that want to do that and build on that, that's great. Actually, I got a couple of people here that are also chefs that receive this product. Like, I'm going to pick on one in particular. She's been in the company for 17 years. Got a lot of energy. And uh, some people, they don't have this tangible understanding of what's going on here, but she gets the product every week. So she's like, oh, yeah, you know, that place up there, whatever. But, like, she's here now, and she's out picking it. And, like, it's, it's going to be hard for her to not take that back to you know in this case she works at the state capitol so we you know do a bunch of schools obviously but uh we do a bunch of um what we call bni or business and industry accounts and the state capitol will become an example of that (laughs) like i mean think about this the state capitol receives uh in total seven locations like 25 shares from this farm that they use in their different places uh, we're we're bringing localized relationships, um, but we bring this stuff and we serve it to you in, in what is like, you know, a corporate cafeteria or mm-hmm. a place that you just expect it to be, you know, cheap crap, uh, highly processed, whatever. But no, and we do, you know, we we bring it into these environments and we, you know, and we do it with kids. We do it with um, all kinds of people or different types of you know clients essentially. 
those are the types of people that we really clients we line up with really well that are really interested in food they're looking for this type of stuff we got a new relationship coming up in Madison that they're really looking at food as a as productivity and food as a uh, energy source versus like food as a perk who like a lot of companies will um, say come in provide a service and I want you to like have all our employees to have free coffee as a benefit of working there right. or discounted pop or kind of whatever but it becomes a, it's like a treat right or a perk food as a perk but like you have companies now that are like we want our people eating healthy food clean food localized food stuff that's kind of you know down and around the corner from the rest of the group because they want their staff to be happy they want them to be healthy and then really the word productive so you don't have that like two o'clock three o'clock crash I mean I had I, I admittedly had half of a Mountain Dew I split it with one of our other guys today <laughs> and I tell you there's nothing like a Mountain Dew before taking a nap because you get that sugar rush you know and you think about it by two o'clock most people two three o'clock people are especially people sitting at their desk like I gotta get up I gotta move. I'm tired. Half of that is just because of what I ate for lunch was was just making me tired. Yeah. So one of the things you talked about was this incremental kind of going into it in an incremental steps. Is that the, the way you did it with Threshing Table Farm? Was that where yeah. you started out? Well, the idea you know morphs as you go in a way, but like we we started. So we originally started. Uh, you know, their daughter Claudia is goes to Hill Murray, mm-hmm. and we do the school food service there. And, you know, a lot of farmers at the end of the growing season, they have a lot of bulk, like squash or whatever, mm-hmm. yeah, especially stuff they're trying to get out before uh, frost and it's outside of whatever, you know, CSA packs they're doing. So that's how I know they were selling product to the, the, to the uh, school. And Nancy, the food service director, she had called me up and she's like, hey, wait, you got you to gotta, you gotta come meet these people and just learn more about it or whatever. She started including me on the weekly email and... Um, so I met Mike and Jody for lunch at school. Uh, Minnesota wild rice soup and a bread bowl. I mean, I could tell you exactly where what we ate, where we sat, all the things or whatever. In that discussion, we're like, you know, what do you have for capacity? Right? Because, you know, as you obviously know, it's limited on space. And you know, so they're like, we could sell you, we, we could come up with about 17 shares. And at the time, we wanted to do... Um, like more of a CSA drop-off site. We were thinking, okay, like we'll buy CSA boxes and provide it to or bring it to our operations. And people in the building that might want a CSA box, we, we just, we're bridging or we're, we're connecting people in a way. Uh, the more we kind of kicked it around, we're like, wow, wait a minute. Like this is better for, you know, in our to use instead of to just basically keep in this box and sell it. So we, they had 17 available that first year and we call it our pilot year. Because you have to figure out the distribution side of it as well, uh, and the days of the week that we that you harvest or that we pick up, and uh, so when we first did it, we were picking up on a on a Tuesday, I want to say, and delivering to our our group on a Wednesday. Well, we're only open Monday through Friday, so you either got to use it up quick or you're going to lose product. Mm-hmm. So year two, this is a true story. We're having our farm dinner, and my dad, you know, our my whole family comes up for these things. It's really a fun kind of family activity, and my dad looks because you know for them to expand. They need a commitment uh, from us because they need to go get more land, right? Right. So, and this is, I think I made this comment about sitting around the table. This is a perfect example. Sitting around the table, having a meal. What do you need to make this work? Mike looks at him. He says, I need to double our production. So 100 shares to 200 shares. And we're like, awesome. Count us in. So we went from 17 to 117 Hmm. from year one to year two. Now, that's a... 
you know, the question being about incremental steps, it, it was really bulk to like, let's do the CSA deal to like, okay, let's crank it up. But what we learned in that process is two things. One, when to pick up, how to use it in the units. Um, and that worked out pretty good. The first year of doing that actually worked out a lot better than we thought. And what we do is, is we communicate to these guys what the packs are. So like one location might get 10 you know, shares, another one might get five. Mm-hmm. So we, we pa- it all gets packed here uh, according to how we're going to resend it out. So when our, our guy comes and picks it up on a Sunday in a reefer truck, brings it to uh, our production kitchen, which really one of the things that we've been able to, that's helped us is make this work is we have an internal distribution system. Uh, and that baby hits uh, at our production kitchen. We basically put it on a truck on Monday and it goes out. So now we're getting it Monday through Friday versus Wednesday through Friday. Mm-hmm. But what we also learned that year was like, okay, like there's some things that we need more of that like this that this could help. So that, that winter we're sitting around the table inside the, the house and um, I was like, well, we use a lot of romaine. And there was, we started to build and plant, do planting cycles behind and, and, and plantings based off of what our, our needs would be and what we would actually use. So we were really to work, be able to work very efficiently with their, with what they're planning is, you know, and we up our timelines because they're planning, they're, they're making all their seed purchases in November and December, you know, so we're, we lined up with that schedule. So I think that third evolution being what, what to grow. Um, but we built it in increments from the counts, and then it's, it's kind of like, you know, there's, there's never a perfect solution. We just keep working the equation. Mm-hmm. So we've made some incremental changes, which have been really helpful this year. Because we, uh, we, we were taking thir- about 30 shares to our production kitchen that would then be processed and then redistributed out into, like, processed into, like, a, a deli salad or some sort of bulk salad or, like, something or even, like, soups, a lot of soups. You know, it's basically two pallets worth of food, which can take a chef three days to, mm-hmm. to break down on their own. So we, um, uh, we've, we've, we've swapped that out. So we're not going to do as much production at the, that type of stuff at the production kitchen that gets then repurposed. We're just using more and more of it in the operations. And, like, when we've, you know, going back to, like, this discussion of, like, not as the incremental steps, but what do we learn in the process? When we first went from, like, all right, let's do CSA boxes to let's use it in the unit. We're like, oh, we could write a weekly special around when it comes out of the box. Some of the things work together. Some of them don't. But in the end, you make, like, five portions of it. So it's like, okay, like, great. Like, we, we made five. And, right. you know, it's just, and you, you know, more, you need to be able to do more than that. So we learned very quickly that it's, it works better as like accents. It just if it accents in within the operation. So you know it may end up in a menu item. It may end up in the salad bar. I mean it just I mean this is produce. It's versatile. We got a bunch of chefs, so they really get to be creative with it. Something else that we do that is really important. You know most consumers, diners, we all have one of these. We all want to know the story. So we do this thing what we call you know meet the producer, and actually Jody and Claudia has done it, done it a lot. Where they'll come to an operation and kind of basically set up shop and say, you know, we put a little sign up says this is who they are, and, and it gives the opportunity for the diner and, and to, to get to meet them and, and again start to probably feel some of this tangible experience that this group's getting here, you know. And I think that's what people are looking for, but it's 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 like that. I mean, and if you build a connection and an understanding to it, because it's, it costs more because it's there's less it's less efficient you know, get less in the truck, all like, you know, you just lose some of those efficiencies that people get when they scale up. Mm-hmm. But if you can build that relationship, you build this, this tangible connection to this, um, willingness to pay is, is there.
Well, that's what I was going to ask you was it must get to the point because you're a business. You have to make a, you know, you have to make a profit. Uh, you must have made some calculations where, yeah, this isn't the most profitable way to do it, but it's paying off in the long term kind of thing. Is that kind of some calculations you do as far as putting up with the hassle of it and maybe not making the, the, the biggest uh, dividend off of that uh, that you could? I wouldn't say I've quantified. My degree is in economics, so like data and you know, data aggregation and, and numbers is actually something I seemingly spend a lot of time doing. But no, I haven't even. I never really tried to quantify it in like this is this cost versus that. Uh, there's a fair amount of variables that come into it, but I mean, this is just it's back to like the story piece. People want to know where their food comes from, and so if that if it costs more, but we can do that, there you go. I mean, winning. So, I mean, you can't, you can't run a business solely on costs. I mean, a lot of people do, don't get me wrong. Uh, and, like, big businesses get this attachment. It's just driven by cost, cost, cost. Well, doing the right thing sometimes costs more, right? Next, I talked to Brian Renz, who's a corporate chef for Taher, as well as its director of culinary programs. He talked about why it's so important for chefs to see firsthand the source of their food and to develop a relationship with farmers who, in turn, support rural communities. So Brian, we were uh, we just finished a tour of the of the gardens here at Threshing Table Farm, and it looks like you have uh, a little over thirty chefs here from uh, I don't know maybe describe a little bit what states they're from, and uh, I assume they're from different institutions or different schools. Can, can you just kind of give us a brief rundown of who, what these folks or where they're from, and, and, and the area and, and the institutions? The uh, summertime. Uh, when school is out, that's the majority of our business, our K-12, but we do also B&I, business and industry, so that'd be your larger businesses or government institutions. We do food service for them too. So there's a few people from there, but most of them are K-12. They're from all over the United States. Taher, the company, is in 19 states. Uh, so here today we've got as far west as California and as far east as Ohio and as far south as Texas, and as far north as uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a training, uh, uh, it's a training for the chefs, kind of a, is this an annual thing, or a regular training that you do kind of thing? It, this is an annual one, and then we'll do smaller ones throughout the school year. Uh, actually travel to maybe their state or their region and have smaller ones, but this is, uh, a larger one. Actually, the group that's here is just a third of the chefs that we have in the company. We're doing the same thing here uh, at the end of July with the other two-thirds. This training seems to be a really good way for the chefs to actually see how this food is being produced and to learn. It was really neat how I think Jody and Mike kind of did everything from talked about what they grow, how they grow it, to kind of the um, situation with industrial farming in this area and some of the uh, uh, challenges that they face. Also, just basic things like harvesting tips and that kind of thing. What, why is that? It seems like this is a very, uh, uh, I don't know if, if you do this often, the, these kind of trains where you bring them out to farms, but wh- why, why is this important? Or why have you guys decided to do that? As far as on a large scale, um, this is the first time we've done it with a group of chefs. On a smaller scale, we do these farm dinners out here at the farm in the spring and the fall where we'll maybe invite a half a dozen chefs to kind of get a similar experience. 
But this one, um, we're really, the in thing now is plant-based foods and clean eating. And coming out here to Threshing Table Farms hits both of those cylinders 100%. And what I really like about it, as we were starting to eat some of the baby greens, some of the leaves from uh, the celery root, uh, the cilantro, uh, where they're really young, what a wonderful different flavor it is based on what we get packaged from a commercial food purveyor. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for them to know that and to taste that. And so when we're trying to recreate recipes, um, we want to give them hints uh, and ideas so that, you know, maybe it would be better for me to get cilantro from Threshing Table Farms, where it has a higher flavor profile versus, well, maybe if I add some more acid or salt or something else, which are the normal tricks mm -hmm. uh, to, to bring flavor out. You don't need to do that because this stuff is delicious just right from the ground. Mm. Yeah, and I think that, that that's what really struck me was some of the chefs talking about uh, even just some, I, I, I took it. Some of the chefs have had experience with some of this produce, or at least, and they were talking about, yeah, this is when it comes in. This is what it's like, and like the potatoes, you can just take your thumb and peel the thing right off. But that kind of relationship seemed to really, because the chefs listen to other chefs, kind of thing. They do, and like, um, for example, the garlic scapes that are out there. Um, you don't need to use many of them. I mean, so not only is the high flavor profile, but you don't need as much. And uh, so you're saving money by not having to buy as much product, but also, too, you're conserving. Uh, you're letting it grow for somebody else, and you're not having to throw it away and that type of thing. So it works out great. Is part of this training to maybe give them some ideas for how they can source their own local food from local farmers? It is, and that was one of the things that Jody talked about at the very beginning, is regardless of where you're from, they explained what they do, but their mission and their real passion is protecting the farm uh, and how the, the farms are dwindling rapidly. I think she had talked about 690 dairy farms were closed in Wisconsin this year. Uh, that we need to do a better job of uh, supporting the CSA farms and the local farmers like that. And we are really being pushed by uh, various states to use farm to school, farm to fork, whatever you want to call it. You know, So it, it is a movement, but yeah, we want them, whether they're from Wisconsin here or from Minnesota or Michigan or even uh, we have one in New Mexico there's stuff out there that we can get and we really really are pushing that and Tahir actually has been for the last three or four years but Threshing Table because of its vicinity to the Twin Cities where our corporate office is and we have a large influx of BNI business in the Twin City we're able to do a lot of CSA boxes from threshing table and use them. Uh, it could be in some of our schools, but most of it is in our BNI because the BNIs are open 12 months a year versus the schools are done the latter part of May, first part of June. 
BNI is business and industry, so that would be a major corporation type of a thing. What's one of the, a couple of the biggest challenges you have in sourcing local food? Because that's, you know, you, it's not, people would be doing it more if it was easy, but what are some of the challenges? Well, the challenge is when we want to do something at a particular unit or if we want to showcase strawberries and we try to be a month out or six weeks out but the weather isn't cooperating mm -hmm. and they have some strawberries but they don't have enough that really raises havoc on us and then sometimes we have to go to a commercial food purveyor and well we have strawberries on the menu so we've got to use some of theirs and it kind of ruins the flavor profile it doesn't really you know do what we want but uh, we need that's our probably our biggest challenge is making sure that we feel uh, we'll get the product that we need yeah that the farm seasonality will kind of match what you're because you don't have a season, so to speak. You have a, a constant demand kind of thing. Right. And in the Midwest, it's obviously different than when we're in southern Arizona or New Mexico or California. And yet we're trying to get the same message across. Mm -hmm. And also, too, different, different products, obviously, uh, depending upon what region. Like, for example, the big deal down in New Mexico are hatch peppers. You don't have hatch peppers up here, you know, in, in Wisconsin. So, you know, there's a little bit of that, too, that we have to really pay attention to what is available in the area that we have the business. Mm -hmm. I just had one final question. From a personal uh, standpoint of a chef and somebody who obviously knows food and, and knows how to prepare food, is it just, I guess more creatively and I guess uh, more satisfying to work with these kinds of foods these local uh, you know uh, locally produced fresh foods is that something that you just kind of like you know uh, just really get a charge out of you do I, I mean it's kind of like with the only way of doing it any better would be growing it yourself which isn't practical for me because I'm working all the time in the kitchen mm -hmm. So the next best thing is to go to a farm and to see that and to make it. And it, the food just seems to have a better flavor profile. It tastes better. All of your recipes, in any professional chef, you're looking for flavor, appearance, taste, and texture. And when you're going to these local farms uh, and at threshing tables with what we saw today out in the field, it hits all four cylinders. We've got the flavor out there, which we talked about earlier. The appearance, it's beautiful, it's fresh. The taste is wonderful, and the texture is what it's supposed to be, or even heartier uh, than, say, if I were to buy it commercially. Do you get a response from the eaters? Do they notice a difference? They do. Yeah, they really do. It's, uh, they don't necessarily know what's different. You know, they can't pinpoint it or whatever, but they can tell it's more satisfying and more fulfilling for them. While Mike Lenz was giving the chefs a tour of the garden plots, he not only explained the challenges of raising vegetables profitably, but why it's so critical farms like theirs succeed. He talked with me after the tour. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was I talked to um, Jody and Trent about this idea of creating relationships with the chefs and how important that is and how 
that's how this has kind of worked out, and, and it really just started out literally from sitting down at a table and talking about some issues and all that. But what I was really impressed about this tour that you guys did, you, you split the chefs up into two groups so you could kind of have more of a conversation with them, was you took them through kind of not only what you're growing, but your practices such as cover cropping, why that's important, some of the challenges you face, you know, everything from, um, you know, weather to pest pressure, that kind of thing, to um, then also kind of uh, what, why you do things a certain way. And I think that that's part of that relationship too, because I think that's part of the goal of, the, of bringing these chefs out here is to see the challenges that you guys face, but also why maybe it's worth, it's worth a little extra trouble to get food from somebody like you because of some of the benefits that you're providing the community and and kind of the land itself is that was that kind of a conscious decision on your part to kind of get across that message a little bit yes uh very conscious decision to to have the chefs have a full understanding of what goes into the product that they're getting on the table and that and trent will say um the seasonality um Chefs as a whole are used to being able to order what they want when they want to throughout the year. And the idea that this product isn't grown in Minnesota and Wisconsin, you don't get watermelon in June in, in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and have them have an understanding of the care and all the work that needs to go into um, the harvest, the, or even starting in the greenhouse, all the way through the harvest and the pack, uh, so that they can have a better appreciation of what they're getting and and also the impact into the communities um, that they're serving. You know, uh, being able to interact with the farm and come to the farm and see what's fresh and pick it fresh because there's a different texture or flavor of what's picked and eaten that day than what was harvested a week ago and served in a cafeteria so yeah did, did you, was there any questions either today or questions you've gotten from chefs in general that uh, uh you hadn't really thought about before that you was like oh yeah i hadn't thought about that that they would see it maybe from that viewpoint or had questions about that um the biggest thing is is just being out here uh i haven't ha- I guess we've had a lot of different questions. I didn't know that this is what broccoli looked like on a plant. Mm. This is a garlic scape. I've never had a garlic scape. How a, a chef that's cooking and cooking wonderful food, not knowing what a garlic scape is, and that you can actually use it and cook with it. Um, not looking what broccoli looks like on a plant that isn't wrapped in a, in plastic or packed tightly in a box. Um, that that the, the flavors are different if you're picking and eating in a couple days instead of a, a week time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the things that I, I get from the chefs, the questions. There were a couple chefs that were also farmers, you know, they're asking about what, I do, what we do for this or what we do for pest pressure or, you know, what's our favorite weeding tool, those kind of things. But... Um, yeah, just the, you know, succession planting mm-hmm. type stuff. Uh, the idea that they're going to get, they can get fresh lettuce from a CSA uh, or local vegetable place in 
September and October uh, for their school accounts or other uh, accounts that they're dealing with. Yeah, I got the sense that they were talking amongst themselves during the tour. And one of the things that I know Land Stewardship Project really promotes is this idea of farmer-to-farmer education. But it seemed like I saw a lot of chef-to-chef education, too. Kind of that, it kind of seemed to be a lot of that. You were talking about some things, and then they were sharing some ideas that had prompted them, uh, had kind of prompted their memory when you were talking. Just like farmers are on an island, I mean, all summer, we don't get to interact with each other that much. We're all kind of on our island. These chefs are all on their own islands, too, at their own restaurants or their own sites. So when they get together, they're sharing. Uh, the, the tribal knowledge grows. Mm-hmm. Um, and the farmer-to-farmer trainings that, that we do um, or are part of is, is similar to what they're doing here today, is they're sharing the tribal knowledge um, and they're growing the base um, on how they do things or maybe, maybe do it more efficiently or, or the impact that one site can have for a local farm um, is one of the points that we're trying to get across also. Mm. You, know, um, you know, it might not seem like a lot to them, but uh, it, it does have an impact. That's a good point that, it, yeah, like you said, they, to them it may not be a lot of vegetables, but for that one farm it could make a real difference to have that market, that steady market. Correct, and, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a different market. And you're, um, you're also, a lot of these are grade school kids or high school kids, so you're impacting at an earlier young, you know, age uh, with good-tasting produce. And, and these guys are amazing with what they'll do with stuff. Where the kids go to school, they, you know, the chef will buy produce or has a, has a garden, and um, they just enjoy it. So, yeah. um, one of the things that you weren't just talking about what you're raising, how you go about it, um, and some of the challenges there, but talking about, I think it seemed like you were trying to get across that bigger message of, so when you support a farm like ours, this is the wider community impacts it can have. For example, you were talking about water usage and pollinator habitat and that kind of thing. It seems like that that's an important message to get across as well, that there's these bigger impacts other than just getting really good food. I mean, our farm theoretically is like 15 acres. We water on a regular basis to grow it, but... One day's water usage from the high-capacity well is more than what we will use all season. To, and, and the point I was trying to get is you can walk a mile in my neighbor's corn and starve to death eating what's coming out of there, or you can walk in my fields and eat and be nourished and live. And that, that's a point that I, I push off to my neighbor farms um, all the time. And they accept it, and they understand it. Um, it's it's the cycle that they're they're trapped in currently. So, um, but yeah, the broader impact of of the small farm in a community is um, I think it's a missing piece um, in communities and unappreciated piece too. Um, people are are in their lives, and the members that come to the farm to pick up are happy they open the doors of the vans the kids explode out of there and they're gone it's like 
mom, I'm only going to be here for five minutes, stay in the van, the door opens, and they're here for an hour. Um, and the, their kids are running around, they're playing in the dirt, they're, um, that, that piece, that, that is very important. Um, and the knowledge of where their food is coming from, so. Finally, Jody Lenz chatted with me about how their relationship with Taher allows them to expand the community aspect of their CSA and how these kinds of farmer-customer relationships could be replicated elsewhere. There, there are some chefs here who, have, who are local, who have worked with your produce, mm-hmm. and these are chefs, these other chefs represent, I, I understand they're from, some are from California, from Ohio, uh, you know, uh, Iowa, Nebraska, and they were explaining to them, oh yeah, when we get these potatoes, you can just, you know, peel that skin right off with your thumb or, or the quality of it you wouldn't believe. And that seems to be to be a really key in that they can talk to the farmers, create that relationship, but like anybody, they listen to their colleagues. <laughs> it's kind of that like farmer to farmer education works, chef to chef education works, and, and they're gonna they go, Yeah, like okay, a farmer can tell me this is good quality, but if another chef tells me that this is something I can work with and it's worth the, maybe the extra effort, that that really pays off. Yeah, I would agree. And I think sometimes one chef might be stumped by a certain aspect of the produce and then somebody else says, oh, you know what you got to do is this. And then that all of a sudden it becomes a, a treasure instead of something that was an obstacle. And so, um, yeah, definitely that chef-to-chef thing is so important and so exciting to to have this opportunity as farmers to have an impact, you know, our, our, our goal for our farm, our, our tagline is growing a healthy community and working with Taher has allowed us to expand that community mm. much wider because yeah. of their impact. So I wonder if the fact that you're a CSA makes you a little bit more open to having chefs out here because you have, you, through the CSA model, you are, um, dealing with eater, your ears, your, the members of your farm a lot, and are used to having that public aspect of the farm. Um, it, if this is just maybe was, I don't know if I want to say the word natural step, but it was, it was a fairly doable step for you because you do have that connection with eaters on a regular basis through that CSA model. Yeah, I would, I mean, the reason we were really drawn to the CSA is because we wanted that relationship. We wanted to know who was going to eat our food and have that connection. So I would guess that most CSA farmers want that connection as well. And so this did, this did come easy for us. Mm-hmm. We really enjoy having the chefs come out and listening to them ooh and ah and um, really value what we do in a way that is at a we love our our kind of regular CSA members and they ooh and ah too, but this is this is a different level of it. It's kind of a whole world that I really didn't have uh, access or I just didn't know. I just yeah. didn't know before. So it is a whole different level. It's just it's just different, but it's really wonderful. Oh, that's an interesting point because they're oohing and on about maybe some different, like the ease of preparation or uh, doing it on a bigger scale or, or some things that a chef would pay attention to that just your average cook yep. or eater wouldn't. And they also are used to getting their produce in a case from a truck so they're seeing broccoli all the time and tasting broccoli all the time and then when they get ours there's they see the difference in a way that i think maybe is magnified than from 
traditional family who's getting a CSA yeah. share. Yeah. Or maybe we just hear about it more. I'm not sure. Yeah. LSP's been working a lot and some other groups have been working a lot, a lot on this idea of farm to school and trying to get make more of those connections. You guys have this really great relationship. Uh, is this a, a unique uh, relationship or could something like this, you know, it have to be adapted, of course, but could it serve as a kind of a model for, because we can pass uh, legislation that would help farm to school and, and all of that, but it comes down to those relationships. And is there something here that you think that could be uh, a lesson that could be taken as far as creating that more on a wide scale basis, you know, uh, of, with a lot of other farms and a lot of other schools and institutions? So I, I think the farm to school movement is really wonderful. Um, but the trick with the farm to school movement is that if you don't have people in the kitchens who are really excited and really knowledgeable, but mostly excited about local foods, then it's not going to really go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So to have the Taher chefs come out and, um, who are working in schools to see how they might reach out to farms in their communities. Um, I, I think they definitely can take some things from this. And, and I hope that the more that this happens, as you, you know, we've talked about chefs talk to chefs and then um, it's, and farmers talk to farmers and the farmers and chefs are talking to each other. I think that it can be a really beautiful thing that can grow and we can all learn from each other. And ultimately if that we're then getting, people in our community eating better foods and then they're they have access to that local food that's cooked really well it just the whole thing can I think just really blossom into something really wonderful for more on ways the land stewardship project is working to connect farmers and eaters see our website at landstewardshipproject.org if you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members, who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.